This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There is uh, hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel. At least I think a lot of people would like to think so with the uh, community college strike, faculty strike that's been going on. It's now in its fifth week. Instructors are beginning what they call a forced vote today on a contract offer. The union rejected at the bargaining table. Uh, the strike, of course, is uh, 29 days long right now, and there are a number of different angles to look at it from this standpoint. But uh, to, to try to get some, some context into this, I want to bring uh, J.P. Hornick into the conversation, chair of the college faculty bargaining team with OPSU. And uh, first of all, J.P., thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. Where are we right now? Uh, well, where we are is at the beginning of the vote uh, on whether or not to accept or reject uh, management's offer to us that they tabled uh, the morning of Monday, November 2nd, um, and it's an offer that uh, we've rejected uh, many times, it includes a slew of concessions that would be very bad for the system, and our members are very much indicating that they're going to reject this offer soundly. If, in fact, you've already turned it down, why go through this process now? Well, you know, that, that's actually a question for college counsel. Uh, we believe that they should have taken this uh, vote on the offer back in September when they first had the opportunity to do so, and they could have avoided this strike altogether. They would have had a better sense of what appetite our faculty have for the kinds of concessions they're asking them to make and the kinds of takeaways that they want to build into our system. So... They could have uh, avoided this, and I'm, I'm not sure why they did it at this point, as it serves only to prolong the strike. There was some optimism, and I use that term guardedly at this stage, uh, when uh, you both got back to the bargaining table a few weeks ago, or a few days ago, rather, I should say. W was anything accomplished in those sessions? You know, uh, we, from the faculty's perspective, we had been really chipping away and, and working toward our key issues and getting some movement on that. Uh, and, you know, the employer steadfastly refused to remove the takeaways, but we thought, you know, we were making enough progress and there was momentum that we'd be able to get some movement on those as well. And, uh, you know, when we went to bed early Monday morning, uh, you know, we had some hope that we'd be able to wrap things up the next day, but instead uh, they called us back to the table to put in this offer that they say we've agreed to everything, but that's actually really uh it's misinformation it's uh, the offer that they tabled and we're taking the vote on is the one that's full of you know uh, a bunch of dirty tricks really and, and traps such, such as and, such yeah. as well you know there's language in there that would allow them to expand um uh, part-time hiring with almost no restrictions on it basically they'd be able to hire as many part-timers as they want uh, there's language in there that would redefine the contract faculty in such a way that it would allow the colleges to get out of their obligations for equal pay for equal work for those folks. And I mean, this was one of the literally the key issue that this strike was founded on was around the fairness for our contract folks. I mean, you've got 12,000 people walking the lines trying to improve conditions for contract faculty, as well as the quality of the education our students receive. And those issues council was trying to undermine at the table. When you mentioned gender parity, uh, maybe you could clarify something for us, JP. Is is that is is uh, a wage parity? I'm sorry. Is that gender based or is that uh, full time versus part time? It's full time versus contract. So okay. you know when we're talking about that, uh, of course, as in almost every labor market, the contract folks 
uh, tend to be predominantly marginal, like women and marginalized people in general. Um, but the overarching concern is that, you know, all jobs in the college system should be good jobs. That's what we should be modeling for our students now. And the colleges are preferring to follow more of a Walmart type model of, you know, short term, low paid labor that they can churn through the system. I want you to respond to an email that I got the other day, because I frankly don't know the answer to this, and, and maybe you could add some clarity to this, uh, asking how many of these teachers actually have other sources of income, uh, either in private sector or uh, pension funds, et cetera? You know, I think that it's a, a very small percentage when you break this down. When you look at that might have been true in the earlier days of the college system. Uh, now what you have is instead of people who have uh, other income, you have the predominantly and certainly in the GTA, folks who are working at multiple colleges to make ends meet. Uh, so this picture of a college faculty who come in, comes in and teaches one class aside from their day job, is not the norm any longer. What you have is nearly three-quarters of your faculty are working on short-term, low-paid contracts. And that's a big shift from what it was 40 years ago when the reverse was true. How do you respond to the reaction that I've heard an awful lot when we've talked about this with our listeners over the last couple of weeks, five weeks, I guess, now, J.P.? That uh, the job security, yeah, great idea, but who has job security these days? I mean, this is the new norm in, in, in labor relations these days, and, and why should teachers expect to get better treatment than everyone else is getting? Well, I mean, interestingly, when you look at teachers generally uh, in the secondary school system and the primary school system, there's a fair amount of job security going in there. Uh, the norms within the labor market shift, uh, you know, generationally, certainly. Uh, this isn't the first time that you've seen a shift towards precarious work or a drive towards, you know, what is now called efficiency and flexibility. But those norms only remain norms if we don't challenge them. College teachers have an enormous amount of privilege uh, within the job market uh, when we're full-time, and we have chosen to use that privilege to make a stand to try and draw a line in the, in, in the sand so that work becomes better for all workers, not just for us. There's a phrase here that uh, we talked about, and I think you and I talked about this early on uh, just after this whole thing started, uh, that, uh, that keeps coming up during the conversation. And maybe you could, again, add some clarity to this. Uh, academic freedom. Exactly what is that and what uh, what are, is the union looking for here? So academic freedom is really simple in the college context. What we're looking for is for the professors to make decisions about the grades their students receive, uh, about the evaluation methods they use, about the materials they use in class. So it's basically allowing the experts to decide what's best in their classrooms. And the language that the colleges had put in their offer is uh, about creating 24 uh, policies that are would, in many cases, make things worse, not better, since they would they seem to be primarily based around discipline rather than true academic freedom. It's really simple. I mean, when you, the question comes down to who do you think should be making a decision about students, the professors teaching them, or the administrators who aren't in those classrooms? And right now, it's the administrators who get the final say on those kinds of decisions. And that's not good for our students. But it, does there not have to be some system, some place, some parameters in place, uh, whether it's, uh, it's secondary, post-secondary, any kind of education like that, uh, some sort of a template that, that, that should be followed? Is that not what the college is professing here? 
Oh, absolutely. We're not saying that this is absolute control. It is still subject to every other provision in the collective agreement. Uh, and it's not as though we're saying that, you know, professors should be able to just, you know, take their students outside and, you know, draw and chalk on the sidewalk. What we're saying is what exists in universities now, which is this level of academic freedom, this is the same language that exists in post-secondary collective agreements all over Canada. So it's not a new concept. It's not a taking absolute control. It's actually about establishing a balance in decision-making. Yet we're hearing that even in in the university uh, environment that things are changing right now. The number of tenure professors is uh, on the decrease. I guess a number have been grandfathered in, but they seem to be shying away from that as well. Is Is that not being reflected in what's going on in community colleges? Well, I think in that case, what you're looking at is not about academic freedom, but about precarious work. And certainly the levels of precarity within post-secondary have been going up. But what you've been seeing, uh, not just in, in our labor dispute, but in others that are going around uh, right now, is a pushback on those issues in universities. We've let things go too far in the direction of uh, contract faculty over full-time faculty, and it's time to actually fix that balance, and that's what we're doing in this. What do you say to the students here? I mean, this has gone on some time, and I know that when we talk to students, uh, including at Mohawk College here in Hamilton, we talk with uh, Samantha Hoover, of course, the president of the Students' Union, uh, and she actually went down to Queen's Park, as you know, and, 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 and yeah. sat in on the protest, but she said she was doing that in a neutral position. I'm hearing from more and more students right now, uh, both mature students and otherwise, that are saying, look, enough is enough. Maybe we're not going to lose our year, but there's going to be a compressed academic uh, semester because of this. That's going to put more pressure on them. They're concerned about finances. They're concerned about their academic okay. future. And they're concerned about job prospects. I mean, let's face it, the idea of community college is to prepare people exactly for the job market, give them hands-on training. That's not happening right now. What do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, the scope of the, the colleges has expanded now, not to just job training, but also applied and standalone degrees and sure. collaborative degrees. So, we, you know, our, our mandate has been shifting over that time. But, I mean, we have been working with the students directly. Uh, the the um, announcement that Minister Matthews made on Friday about uh, taking all of the money that the colleges have saved by not paying faculty and giving that back to the students that was joint work that was done by college student associations as well as the faculty who started a petition. Now, the faculty petition also said they should take management salaries and bonuses and put those out, too. Um, but we have been really deliberately working with the students and trying to support the students in the advocacy they've been doing. We want to be in the classrooms with them, and we believe that we could have done this much earlier had the colleges actually stopped engaging in bullying tactics and started actually bargaining. That money uh, that's been reallocated now as a result of this, I mean, at some point, uh, your your union membership are going to say, yeah, but that would be better off in our pockets, too. My understanding is that your members are losing about 2% of their annual pay per week during this strike, which uh, uh, I, I guess on average, if we look at some of the average salaries there, is, is almost around $10,000 at this stage right now. At what stage is that financial hardship going to have an impact on your members? Absolutely. Those are great questions. So uh, I can tell you that yesterday I spent the day traveling uh, all over the province and the GTA and talking to our members, and there's not a single one that said that money should be back in our pockets rather than going to the students. Uh, we understand uh, exactly how the students have been suffering. Um, you know, we work with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Our members, uh, this has never been about our wages and benefits. And yes, it's an incredible hardship to be on strike uh, for five weeks. This is, uh, you know, 
historically unprecedented in our system. But if anything, our members resolve to face these issues and to make sure that these gains can be brought into the system to make it better has only grown over that period of time. We've gotten stronger over that. Um, and so I actually think that what's going to happen is on Thursday, we're going to see that we have rejected this offer soundly, and we will be right at that bargaining table waiting for council to come back and finally settle this thing out and make sure that the system is one we can all uh, thrive in. But I'm hearing, as I'm sure you are at this point, JP, is that more and more students are looking at themselves as collateral damage in this confrontation. Yeah, I can understand that completely. I mean, the faculty are now seeing themselves in, in much the same light. I mean, when we're actually trying to get to uh, what's happening with the students, we're trying to get ourselves, and we have done everything we can to get ourselves back in those classrooms as quickly as possible without giving up on these really basic principles. If this was a, a round about our own wages and benefits, it would have been settled long time ago. But this is about the future of the system, and people are walking not just for our current students, but for our future students. So this is, as much as it is short-term pain in this process, this is about making a better system for Ontario College students. You understand if this is rejected, uh, and I know the province has said that they don't really want to go down the road of back-to-work legislation, but uh, you've seen the past record of every government that's been in a precarious situation like this, JP, and they say they're not going to do it right up until the time that they do it. Uh, You may be forced back into the classroom. How do you respond to that? I mean, we're taking it one day at a time. I, you know, my next step in this process is to get us through to the rejection vote and then to go from there and see what the, la- the landscape looks like. I imagine that the province, uh, they have a lot to say in this process. They hold the purse strings. Um, and, you know, the 24 college presidents also can't abdicate their responsibility. Each of them is a director on college council, and they could end this thing much more quickly if they started behaving in a collegial fashion. Well, we'd uh, all like to see this thing end uh, and, and, and get everybody back there, and uh, we'll see what happens after Thursday and then uh, next steps after that. JP, thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. JP Horn, of course, the chair of the uh, college faculty bargaining team. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is not a new issue. Uh, one of the most convoluted and, and I think in many ways unfair practices that uh, the provincial government, and I don't just mean this administration, I'm talking about like over the last 30 years, uh, has been engaged in, is this idea of school closures. I mean, population shift and you have to make adjustments. We get that about how you serve a different community and how you, you try to accommodate the changes that are occurring in those communities. Uh, and that can include uh, like board boundary changes for the city. Are you listening, City Council? But it can also mean about schools and, and where you're going to build new ones, et cetera, and, and how effectively you can use some of the older buildings. Well, it's caused an awful lot of controversy, as you can imagine. We've seen that time and time again here in Hamilton. It's a, a raging inferno of controversy in Burlington right now because of the possibility of the closure of a couple of high schools there. Now, earlier this year, the Ministry of Education granted two local Burlington high schools administration review following the PAR process, and that was good news to a point. However, uh, when trying to draw attention to what the schools are offering and and maybe try to present the arguments for this, uh, some of the voices in Ontario politics who have tried to get involved in this have been denied, and uh, that's frustrating a number of the community folks, including parents of the students who attend those schools. 
trying to get a handle on what's going on here and the implications. Deb Wakem joins us, who is a parent on the Burlington Park Committee, and uh, she's uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Hi, Deb. How are you doing this morning? Hi, Bill. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Well, good to have you on. Listen, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about where you are now, because it's been a few months, actually, since we t- we talked about this, but uh, that it's had not been a few months where nothing has happened. There have been some changes here. That's right. So September 5th, we uh, received word that we were granted the administrative review. Maybe you should explain um, for those who don't understand what that is, exactly what that, what that entails. Right. So that review is uh, done by someone independent hired by the Ministry of Education who looks at the process and was the process followed. So that's not to look at the merits of the decision. It's simply to look at if the PAR process was followed by the school board. So they're not going to make a, 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 a decision here, or they're not going to make an evaluation saying, yeah, they made the right choice, the bad choice. That, they, they, right. They're just making sure you follow the rules, or the, the process followed all the rules. That's correct, yes. So we. How comfortable I, are you with that? Well, not very. Um, I feel like it, at this point it feels like the decision or the merit of the decision is untouchable, which feels wrong. Which is was my reaction when I saw with the parameters here. It, it doesn't say, well, we're going to review this and see may, whether or not they made the right decision. They, uh, because, you know, following the rules doesn't necessarily mean that the conclusion is going to be the right conclusion. That's correct. That's correct. And, and we have to keep in mind, too, that the ministry has recently, uh, in the summer, halted all PARs in Ontario because they admitted that the process was flawed. So here we are fighting to prove that a flawed process wasn't followed in our case. It, it, it just seems to lack common sense. Well, and that to me is one of the great incongruities in this. I mean, for the province to actually say that uh, we don't think the system is working properly, but uh, by the way, that same system that was used to make the Burlington decision, that's going to stand. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, we have tried to, we have um, had Patrick Brown, uh, agree as the education critic and the leader of the PC party. He agreed to come and visit Robert Bateman High School in Burlington. Um, we did put that offer out to uh, the Liberal Minister of Education, our Liberal MPP. They weren't interested. But uh, Patrick Brown wanted to come and wanted to see a human side to this, is, is how we see it. Why? Listen, I want to ask you about this in a much broader sense, because we've, yeah. we've talked about this some of the members of Burlington Council, and, and, and Councillor Ward, to her credit, has been involved in this process. I, I get the sense in talking to some of the other folks on Burlington Council that they're a little reticent to, to, to dip their toe into this water here. And, and, and again, even at the provincial level, I, I mean, they always just back off and say, well, it's not our decision. Well, it may not be, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't have input into it. And I agree, and that's what we've been we've heard from council and the mayor is it's not their process and it's not their decision. But to that, I would say to them, it affects your city. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Yes. So let's, no, let's... politicians don't like to get. I think a school closing is a lose lose in the eyes of politicians. So where, where do you go with this now? And by the way, we should mention that uh, the decision uh, to deny uh, Mr. Brown, his uh, Patrick Brown's uh, I, uh, request to actually visit the two schools, uh, was not made by, by the board. That was made by the board. It was not made by the parents group. It wasn't made by anybody else. That's it was the right. board that made this decision. That's right. It was the Halton District School Board. They now, was it the administration it or were it the trustees? The administration. Okay. Yes, and that's we were given no reason uh, with requests for reasons. Up until now, these kids have just been a number on a paper. 
that's what they're seen as. And the schools are seen as buildings and a school information profile. We need somebody to see why Bateman is unique. It, it won't fit in a lift and shift process, which is kind of what the PAR process does. It, it, it closes schools and just sets them into other schools. Well, with Bateman having such a high number of special needs kids, that won't work. And we want people to understand, and we, we want people who make decisions and who have an input to understand. And you've made those arguments in the past. We have. We have. And yes. you're not getting a whole lot of traction on it. We're not, no. So we were excited for Mr. Brown to come, and we felt that if the school board wants to be transparent um, and, and take ownership in their decision, then they should be okay with eyes coming in and taking a look and understanding. And this can help students all across Ontario because the process needs to be overhauled. So come in, take a look, and understand. That's what we were hoping for. And what's the response? It's a no. <laughs> but but here's what I, 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 I'm trying to make, make some sense of here. Yes. Is, is they want to go through this review, which basically means they want to make sure that the, the, the board crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. That, that's really that's what right. this comes down to. But there's no evaluation. There's no, there's no evaluation of the evaluation uh, that the board did in this situation right now. It's kind of like, well, it's their call. They made the call. Whether you agree with it or disagree, it's too bad, so sad. We're moving on. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's did the board follow their own guidelines? And other than that, nobody else wants to touch it. The ministry tells us that at the local level, um, the local level says we stand by our decision, even though it was now proven to be a flawed process, and, and they won't let go of that. So that's where we're stuck, is we can't have that decision reviewed. How, how do you approach this, though? I mean, given the fact that they've all but slammed the door in your face right now, what, what options do you have left to try to carry through with this? Well, th there's not a lot, and I think for us what we're doing is we're keeping these students at the forefront of our mind, these students who, whose families have said they could lose up to a year of school if they're forced to transition. It's about them for us, so we'll continue to go. We continue to try and speak to the community, to any politicians who will listen. We'll keep going, even though there isn't a pre-paved path for us to follow. Yet, while you're doing this and you're fighting this fight, the, the provincial government, if we can take them at their word right now, is, at least internally anyway, uh, having a reevaluation of this whole idea and this whole concept. That's right, which to me is even more why they should allow a visit or want to come in. This is the education credit. He values and respects schools and students. So let him understand, and if you don't want him to come, come yourself. Come and understand. If you want to change the process, come and see the human impact and see how a unique school like Bateman can't fit into the PAR process as it is. And, and, and again, I, again I, the frustration here must be just incredible for, for you as parents uh, to understand that the government doesn't seem to want to get involved in this, yet it's their Ministry of Education that oversees this whole process. That's exactly right. That's right. And by the way, this is not, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is not just a liberal problem. This has been going on for years in this province, ever since this policy was instituted right now. Uh, for years, people have been talking about the unfairness of this right now and, and, and the problems that it can cause uh, within community. Uh, and, and what I find contradictory to this whole situation 
is that there seems to be a realization uh, by a number of elected officials right now that schools are more than just bricks and mortar, and they're more than just, okay, from uh, 8.30 till 3.30, that's where you learn stuff, that they're community hubs, uh, and that they play a key part in in neighborhoods and in communities right now, yet that doesn't seem on on the first blush here to be a factor in these decisions. That's exactly right, Bill. It doesn't. And I think in the case of Bateman, what I see is it mirrors a real community. You have all five pathways. So you have kids in there learning to be good citizens. And isn't that what we want? And I really think that the board and the Ministry of Education should be open to looking at that and seeing how this affects communities now and in the future. I mean, we've got a similar situation here in Hamilton, and, and I've been barking up the tree about this for a couple of years now. There's an inner city school here right across from uh, from the arena here called Sir John A. McDonald that they want to close down. And it's a school that, that first of all, serves a, a very express purpose here because the, the inner cities where an awful lot of the uh, immigrant families move here, English is second language, et cetera, and they've got some incredible programs that deal with those people to help to get them assimilated in to the school system and the education system and into the community as well. And they're simply going to say, we're going to close the doors on that. We're going to bust those people to the other side of town to a school that we're building someplace else. They, they don't seem to take the human factor into consideration here. That's right. I agree. And, and the same thing happens here with Bateman, with some of the programs yeah. that are going on there. Is is there a guarantee that, uh, that when these students are going to be relocated, that those programs are going to be available to the same extent and with the same success rates? Absolutely not. Well... Then, then right. what, are they, what, what, what about this whole idea, this mantra that students come first? That's right. Well, clearly, clearly they don't. And if they don't, they need to have a boots-on-the-ground type of approach to actually see and understand what it does to communities. So this goes on. The review process goes on, such as it is. Uh, but they're simply going to come back and say, yeah, the board followed the process, to, and that's the end of this. Or oh, even if they say, no, they didn't. That's right. Is is there is there any indication at all that if they find there's some 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 incongruity in how the board actually went through this process right now that there'd be a reevaluation of the decision? Absolutely not. So why are we even going through the process? Well, I think it's another way to shine a light on a process that failed our community and is continuing to fail communities all across Ontario. But the province has already admitted that it is a flawed process. They have, and so we're hoping they can learn from it because I'm sure it won't be the first time or the last time that Burlington falls under a par. So if it happens again and it's going to affect our community again, firstly, we'd like to save Bateman. Secondly, we'd like to help kids in the future. We want them to understand the process so this doesn't happen like this again. I'm I'm going over old ground here for you, Deb, and for the other parents in this, but for the sake of our listeners, let me just back a, a little bit. Given that scenario, why, then, has the government not stepped in and said, okay, we'll freeze this whole process until we get this evaluation done on a province-wide basis? Uh, did you, know, you get we, a response to that? Yeah, we have had no answer to that. We, um, Our decision was made, uh, I believe, less than two weeks, or less than two weeks before the decision to halt the PAR processes were created. So nothing had happened. There were no shovels in the ground. No, no changes had taken place. So we have requested and we've actually started a petition as have many communities in Ontario asking the ministry to make that decision retroactive. I mean that would be the common sense thing to do in a situation yes, like would. this. And but you've made a very, a very valid point here. This is not as if you're asking them to to hold a process. It's not as if shovels are in the ground, they've started That's construction. Right. 
this is very much a fluid situation, and all it would take was a decision to That's reverse right. this or at least put a freeze on this. Uh, it, it, it's not as if time is lost or contracts have been signed in That's this. That's right. And, and I look at it, Bill, as what's the urgency here? Why do we have such an urgency to close these schools when, when we understand the process is flawed? Let's wait and see and make sure that it is followed and it serves all communities and all students. Well, I'll give you a scenario here that, that may or may not be applicable to what's going on in Burlington right now. Uh, the Hamilton Board went through this with high schools a couple of years ago, and it was very contentious. I mean, as, as we all know, we talked about it extensively on this program. And there were a number of schools that were slated for closure on Hamilton Mountain uh, at that time. Uh, and at least two of them that I know of now have been reevaluated, as, and, and partially because parents made such a fuss that they delayed the process. But as that delay happened, there were population shifts and changes in attitude. And now they're saying, well, in second thought, maybe, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we do this instead. Uh, so the longer you can, uh, if I can use a hockey parlance here, rag the puck, uh, <laughs> you got the possibility of at least a changing cl- climate here and a changing attitude. That's right, and that's how we see it. And that's why we'd like to keep it halted as long as possible. What kind of response are you getting from from the community on this? I mean, because I know that some people are going to look at this and say, ah, this is just a handful of parents, you know, and they're just being activists. And, that's you know, right. They'll, 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 they'll go away once this is all said and done. That's right. And, you know, we do hear a little bit of that, but for the most part, the people in the Bateman community and the Pearson community, which the other school slated for closure, they're angry. They feel like their voices aren't heard. Um, I think the kids in the schools feel like the least important in the school board. And while some people think that we're just angry parents, we're not. We're fully aware that decisions can be made that we don't agree with. And the community of Bateman is a school of students that fully understand that life isn't fair. If you see some of the challenges some of these kids face. So it's not about that. It's about this is what's right. This is what's wrong. We're going to keep fighting it. We have a lot of support from the community. People want their schools. Schools matter to communities. And so we have a lot of encouragement. I, I should reiterate, by the way, for uh, folks that may be new to this discussion, uh, the two schools that are slated right now, uh, Pearson and Bateman, uh, are not dilapidated schools that are falling over. That's correct. All right. They're, they're not brand new by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm sure that there are upgrades that need to be done, as there is isn't just about every building, I guess, with boards of education these days. But but this is not a situation uh, where they're saying, well, this just doesn't meet the needs. It's old. It's uh, it, You know, the repair bills would be higher than the cost of new construction, and there are schools like that in some jurisdictions. Uh, right. This is This is a much different set of criteria. Absolutely. Yeah, both of these schools are structurally fine and serving their student bodies very nicely. And the programs within those schools, I think, is, is really what you're fighting for here. It's not That's just the right. bricks and mortar. It's, it's, right. it's the sorts of education and the types of education that are That's available right. right now. That's right. These kids are getting exactly what they need. Some of these kids have had a very difficult time and have bounced from school to school. And now they've found a homeschool in Bateman, whether they walk to it or a bus to it. And you can't change culture overnight. You can't pick up and place culture into another school. The uh, sand is running out of the hourglass, though, here, Deb. What's the time frame like this where the board's going to make a decision? Well, the board has already made their decision. So even with the administrative review going on, the board has not halted their plans, and they are still going ahead. And um, even in the middle of our administrative review, they are still forging ahead with their plans to close the schools. Uh, Bateman will close if this decision is not overturned in 2020. 
But here's the concern among many that, that, that I see anyway. As they carry along with their process, if all of a sudden a provincial government or the Ministry of Education, specifically in this case, decides to put a halt to it, then then the, the board is going to come back and say, well, wait, we're too far down the road right now. You can't stop it. That's right. That's right. And that's our concern, which is why we had hoped when the administrative review was decided upon, we had hoped that, that the board would stop um, just to respect the process in that time frame. Um, but that hasn't happened. So that's why we're continuing to fight. And we do see it as um, a very timely matter. You, you've got to be frustrated, though, because you've seen this government particularly uh, reevaluate. I'll use that word. I'll try to be kind here. Some would suggest backtrack mm-hmm. on such key policies as hydro and other, other controversial issues over the last little while, including taxation that we're going to talk about on the show in just a little bit here, uh, and say, maybe, maybe we were too hasty. Maybe we need to step back and do something differently here. And they're being applauded in many circles, and, and I think there's some justification in that, for saying, good for you. you, it's good to admit that maybe we made the wrong move, but they don't seem to want to go and do that sort of evaluation here. That's right. That's right. And nor does the school board and nor do the trustees. And um, unfortunately, it's a little bit like banging our heads against a wall. Well, keep on keeping on. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll stay in touch as this, of course, proceeds. And, and, and obviously, we'll be waiting for the results of the administrative review, such as it is anyway. I don't know that that's going to have much of an impact. Uh, I think this is uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, a number of people here would like to keep this out of the political arena. It's very much in the political arena. And, uh, and I think that's going to have some influence on what's actually going to happen here eventually. I think so, too, Bill. Thanks so much for the time today, Deb. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll stay in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Dad Boy comparing on the Burlington Park Committee, very, very concerned about what's going to be happening with the potential closure of Bateman and Pearson High Schools in Burlington. I mean, it's, it's common sense. If the province says, you know what, we think the system might be flawed, so we're going to put a freeze on everything, then don't let the, the decision that was made under that flawed system go on. Freeze everything until you finally decide what you're going to do. That's the common sense thing to do. That's what should prevail, you'd think. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, there's a great deal of consternation right now about the Russian involvement, of course, in the U.S. election. And I know that Trump and his administration and his uh, his followers are, are suggesting nothing to see here, nothing to see here. But every now and then, and it seems like on a pretty consistent basis now, uh, we hear stuff to the contrary. The latest one, of course, is that the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., has confirmed that, yes, he did have multiple online conversations with WikiLeaks, an anti-secrecy group, of course. That was during the election. And uh, we heard an inkling of that a couple of days ago, of course, with that uh, communication that went back and forth about WikiLeaks suggesting they had a lot of dirt on Hillary Clinton. Are you guys interested? And then there was the meeting in Trump Tower, et cetera. Uh, at least four congressional officials uh, have suggested that Trump Jr. has handed over messages to several committees investigating this. In a related issue, Attorney General Jeff Sessions will and actually appear on that two-dot congressional committee a little bit later on amid uh, speculation that he may have misled them with some of his previous comments, uh, specifically the one that says he had no known knowledge of any uh, work that went on between Russian officials and the Trump administration. Where does this lead us? Where's this all going? Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, has been tracking the story. Of course, she brings us the update right now. So she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Laura? I'm well, thank you, Bill. You can't write this stuff, can you? No, you can't. And I think that people might be at risk of some Russian outrage fatigue at this point because it just it's this drip, 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 drip all the time. 
And I think there's a, there's a tendency to say, oh, let's just wait and see what Mueller comes up with. But the fact is there are multiple investigations happening, not just the special prosecutor with Mueller. There's also these congressional investigations. And when they've been saying all 17 agencies, you know, all the intelligence agencies in the U.S. have been saying for over a year, that absolutely Russia interfered with the election in in many different ways, including in the cyber capacity. And here we have WikiLeaks uh, with these conversations directly with Donald Trump Jr. And I think that people need to understand what they're saying is that, in fact, WikiLeaks is working as an agent of the Russian military, Russian intelligence, that there was a concerted effort to influence, work with, support the Trump campaign. And so some of these emails uh, just on their own seem quite damning. But other people might look at it and say, yeah, but that doesn't sound like Russia directly. And if Donald Trump Jr. was receiving these emails and didn't respond to all of them, and all he did was forward things that were in the public domain anyway, at the suggestion of WikiLeaks, did he really do anything illegal? So it's very complicated. And I think that a lot of people are, are um, you know, trying to fit together why this is so important. It's important because there are direct timeline connections between the emails that Donald Trump Jr. got, the comments that his father, then candidate, made. Uh, the timelines are very, very tight and seem like bigger than coincidences. But, but it's very complex, though. Let's talk about uh, context here, though, and that's a very important element to this, Laura. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, look at time and place in this situation. Where was Julian Assange living at the time? Well, he's he's of course not a free man. He's he's held up in an in an embassy <laughs> because he's he's trying to avoid prosecution, right? And this is a guy who, frankly, let's let's put this again in context, had an axe to grind with the Democrats and the Obama administration because they're the ones that were going to press charges on him for leaking confidential government information. So this guy clearly uh, had something going against the Democrats and clearly contacted the Trump administration and says, hey, I got something that I think can help you here. Yeah, and you know, and, and uh, WikiLeaks isn't. Uh, there's no love lost for WikiLeaks in the United States uh, intelligence agencies or on Capitol Hill because, for a variety of different reasons. I mean, they have been a real thorn in their side. They've been leaking documents in various cases for years. And to some people, Julian Assange is a hero of sorts for transparency. In this case, though, it seems as though he was very much in alignment with some of the other narratives that were coming out of Russian intelligence or Russian military actions or in attempts to influence the election. And, and so there's an alignment in this that is very hard to escape, Bill, when they look at the, when intelligence looks at some of the things that the Russians are, were saying in this space or that space or through their troll farms which is something new that we've all learned about, uh, and then what WikiLeaks was suggesting that, in fact, Donald Trump Jr. do, for instance. You remember that Donald Trump sort of floated out there to everyone's fear just before the election night that he may contest the results, if you remember that. I think you and I spoke about that. Uh, no one had ever really heard somebody say it quite like that, and people were very fearful that he would pursue that. And then here we have uh, WikiLeaks uh, contacting Donald Trump Jr. on, I believe, on election night saying, listen, if your dad doesn't win, uh, it'd be a good idea to contest these results, right? And, and this idea that anything to disrupt the democratic process, faith in Western democracies, that's right out of the Russian playbook. And it's not just the United States, as we know, there was talk of them doing this in some other elections in Europe. So, I mean, the idea that Julian Assange or this email from WikiLeaks that people think is attributed directly to him was coming into the Trump campaign. They were following up on some of its suggestions and its suggestions align with other Russian uh, narratives. It, it, It is all there. It's you know, too close to com- for comfort. And you had Vice President Pence 
sending out this weird statement last night, you know, that he had absolutely no knowledge of any of this. So if this is all just a big nothing burger and it's no big deal and there's nothing to it, why is Pence going on such an emergency proactive kind of measure to distance himself? It seems like there's more to it. And and again, the frustration here is is that the other side, in other words, the Trump advocates and and, and those that are, are following the, the president and, and and believing his every word, are, are mounting their own counteroffensive against this right now, uh, suggesting that uh, you know only a small percentage of American voters actually subscribe to internet services, whether it's Twitter or Instagram, etc. I think it was seventeen percent was one number that was mentioned. I don't know if it's that low. Uh, and suggesting that that really can't influence an election. But what they fail to realize or what they fail to comprehend or even, I I guess, state here, Laura, is that this is all about strategic voting. You don't need to influence the entire American electorate. You only need to influence a small pocket of people in Pennsylvania and Michigan and places like that to swing an election. Well, this is what's so interesting about all of this, is that if Donald Trump acknowledges in any way, shape, or form that Russia somehow influenced the election, it undermines his credibility. People might say, well, in fact, then he did not rightly win, that that he is not a legitimate president. And that, I think, is his chief concern, his ego, and his thought of it being illegitimate somehow. It could well be that all of this Russian interference didn't, in fact, cause that electoral college win for Trump. However, there is also, if you look at the Russian troll farms and what they put on Facebook and Twitter and all of the paid ads and how micro-targeted they were to specific narratives and specific voting regions, it looks as though the Russians were supplied with some sort of micro-data on the United States. It it looks as though they had some support, although that certainly hasn't been proven out. Uh, But it also looks as though, to your point, they were being extremely targeted. So whether or not you know, uh, a huge amount of Americans actually saw anything from WikiLeaks or actually um, this changed their vote. If there was micro-targeting efforts by a foreign adversary with some sort of support internally from the Trump campaign or others in the United States to get these messages and influence even some voters, that's something that, that the Congress and the Senate and the should be the executive branch should be taking extremely seriously. And, 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 I mean, the denials here have been, I think, outrageous. I mean, especially we look at the Facebook controversy that occurred a couple of weeks ago where they finally came out and acknowledged that, yeah, there was pretty strong evidence that uh, that Russian officials actually bought a number of ads, influential ads, uh, and posted them on Facebook, notwithstanding the fact that they had denied that. And I, I can remember at the Senate hearings where Senator Frank had actually questioned the, Wiki, or the, uh, the Facebook lawyer and, and said to him, he said, so, so, so these ads were purchased on Facebook in rubles, paid for in rubles, but you couldn't connect the dots to think that maybe they were the Russians? I mean, it just seemed as if so many people turned a blind eye or are trying to cover their tracks in this situation. Yeah, it's not even subtle. I mean, some of the moves weren't even subtle, and it just goes to show you how unprepared uh, or how vulnerable the United States was, and, and potentially Canada and other countries, uh, in our elections, right? And, and, and the reason why we're so vulnerable is that part of what I find fascinating as a communications person is that they didn't put pro-Russian propaganda in. They didn't even have to sort of go hard about uh, creating a controversy. All they did was map out the internal tension and the internal angst of the U.S. culture, and they just had these troll farms of people who would just pump out these social media narratives, and they would just blast them out there and get Americans fighting amongst themselves and then starting to get into stronger ideological camps, and then they would float out misinformation about the campaign, and it just, 
was such an easy target and, and, and such a well-coordinated play. And I think that all of us, even here in Canada, if your listeners thinking, why does this matter to us? Well, it matters because the information on Facebook was deliberately set up uh, and, and false. And the information on Twitter, some of it that was sent out, and the, the idea of just getting us all riled up about our own internal strife to take apart our democracy, it's something that we should all be very, very cognizant of. What information are we looking at? Where do we get our news? How do we vet it? How do we make sure that we're not, we're not being played? Well, and, and again, having to, to, I guess, confirm uh, some of the information that has come in front of us right now, which is maybe one of the reasons why Jeff Sessions is back in front of this uh, Senate committee again today up on Capitol Hill, uh, where they're questioning some of the statements that he has made previously, where he said he had no knowledge of any Russian connection, had never been involved in this. And subsequent to that, of course, Laura, we've seen pictures that have been published of Sessions sitting at a desk with Trump, Papadopoulos, and others uh, with Russian officials talking about the potential meeting between the Russians and Donald Trump, which which tends to, to suggest that there's a certain incongruity to what Sessions is saying and, and the proof that's before us now as to what it was actually happening. Well, this is what makes this whole thing stink to high heaven, if you will, is that even with this new Donald Trump WikiLeaks email dump that happened last night, there was an email that he forwarded with the suggestion from WikiLeaks about uh, the election. He forwarded it to the top tier of the campaign. You know, so now Hope Hicks and all the others, Conway and the rest of them, they're all grouped into this email forward, right? So it looks as though Russian involvement meddling all the way from external people like Roger Stone all the way through to the top tier of the campaign, there was some mucking around happening. Now, whether or not you could, they were smart enough, except for a guy like Manafort, who would have absolutely known what was going on and who knows what his role was. Um, but the fact is, for all of this to be swishing and slushing around and then to have Jeff Sessions say there was no contact with the Russians, it makes it extremely hard to believe that. And then when you have Vice President Pence multiple times going out and saying absolutely no contact, aware of absolutely nothing. Either he was leaving the room for plausible deniability, or he's just completely out of the loop, or he is lying constantly. But I mean, it doesn't, every single person uh, seems that all these names that we've mentioned seems in some way to must have had some knowledge of some sort of involvement with Russia at this point. So it's it, strains credibility that they haven't. Now, that hasn't been proven out in the court of law, of course, but in the court of public opinion bill and, and the way that these narratives are stacking up and where they don't align and where there are discrepancies in their testimonies and their stories, I think it's becoming increasingly problematic for the Trump administration. Yeah, you've got Donald Trump last week suggesting that he believes Putin when he says he has no involvement in this, notwithstanding the information that he's been receiving from his own security agencies and, uh, and intelligence agencies that are telling him quite the contrary. It was just gobsmacking that on an international trip, he would undermine his own U.S. Uh, his own U.S. intelligence. Talk about you know on Veterans Day weekend, some of them were veterans that he named as being partisan hacks, which in fact they aren't. They're long-term government employees that serve multiple political administrations. So it wasn't accurate. It was a a really brutal attack uh, that he got a lot of flack for, and he tried to walk back his statement against his intelligence people, but the fact of the matter is he was willing to throw them under the bus on an international stage to say he had blind blind support, blind belief in Putin, which I think, you know, the rest of the world looks at that and says, what on earth is going on there? I mean, he, he says that he wants to have a, a good relationship with Russia because it's good to get their help on certain other hotspots around the world, but he went 
so far over the line uh, when he was on his Asia trip that people have to, I think, fundamentally ask themselves why. Why, with a guy who's all over the map on every other topic, is it so consistently supportive of Putin going back now a couple of years? What's going on? Uh, and by the way, for those that are suggesting and asking, uh, and I've, I've heard for this from some of the sources on social media, well, why would Assange do this? What's in it for him? Uh, it comes the suggestion uh, from uh, The Atlantic, who's uh, covering this story right now, that uh, that uh, they had asked, Assange actually asked uh, and, and was pressing the, the Trump administration uh, to pressure Australia to appoint uh, Julian Assange as ambassador, Australian ambassador to the United States, uh, if in fact he should win this election. So there was a payback involved in, in this, f- f- this funneling of information to the Trump campaign. Absolutely. It seems as though there was some kind of a quid pro quo being negotiated or at least a suggestion of this is what I would like. I mean, and if you look at that lawyer, that Donald, that meeting that Donald Trump Jr. took with that Russian lawyer, that, that famous meeting that came out a few months ago, that was about, you know, you give me this, I'll give you that. That lawyer now did a several hour interview in Russia saying that, you know, she was hoping to get some kind of a, a reversal on the, on the act that, that sort of freezes Russian money around the world. Uh, the Magnitsky Act. So, I mean, there, there seems to have been a lot of offers for, I'll give you this for that, whether or not Donald Trump Jr. took any of them, whether or not he broke any laws. I mean, I think that's the ground that they are looking at legally, but from a perception of ethics and perception of supporting the efforts of a, of a foreign adversary, it, it just is a dark day for American democracy, and they have to get to the bottom of what went on. And by the way, as uh, one person who's well-versed in international affairs suggested to me that if that were to happen, if Trump had actually pressured Australia, if Assange had been named ambassador, uh, all of a sudden he falls within the guise of uh, diplomatic immunity and can't be prosecuted in the United States. So, well, sure, there's an advantage for Assange, for sure. For, for sure as well. Uh, we and th- th- we got one minute left here, but I, I very quick comment if you could, because there's obviously the uh, the counterpunch that the Trump administration tries to come up with, and they, the story earlier this morning uh, that uh, Sessions is now considering opening a special prosecutor office right now to invest Hillary Clinton again. Well, Sessions wants to keep his job. It's been threatened by the president. The president tweeted out that the, his Department of Justice should be looking in to Hillary Clinton. The fact that he's floating that letter out the day he's going in front of. Uh, the, you know, the Capitol, it all looks as though not only is he trying to kowtow to Trump to keep his job, but it is, of course, crossing the line when a president tries to use his own Justice Department to go after his political opponent. That's something you see in banana republics and, and in, uh, you know, terrible, terribly run countries around the world. It's, it's a step too far for the United States. But unfortunately, in this particular administration, there are so many breaking of conventions and norms that this just seems to be one more of them. Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group, of course. Thanks as always, Laura. Great talking to you again today. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.